So we're going to read James uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Beginning in verse 1, it says, uh, My brothers. He keeps referring to the people that he's writing to throughout the book, either as my brothers or my beloved brothers, a little extended form. In this short five chapters, he refers to them that way 15 times. He's about to go into some issues on how we treat people and how we look at people. And he starts by kind of leading the way and looking at them as fellow brothers in Christ, fellow family members in the family of God. And so as we pick up there, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I remember reading years ago an account of a pastor. He decided to perform a test, I guess you'd call it, upon his congregation. And so on a Sunday morning, bright and early, he got up and and he proceeded to make himself look like a homeless person. And then he kind of hung around out in front of the church as people were coming to church and making their way in and coming in and sitting down. And But because he's out doing that, then he's not where he usually is. So after a while, people are kind of looking around, well, where where's the pastor? He waited till he was a little bit late. And so the people are really kind of curious what's going on. And then the doors open and in comes this guy. He starts walking up the aisle. And then he ascends up onto the pulpit area and turns and everybody recognizes who it is. And then he just talked about what the experience was that morning. How many people wouldn't make eye contact or look past him or walked around him. And I'm sure he had people that greeted him and stuff as well. But he talked about what that was like and challenged them to question how they perceived him and whether they felt that their response was a good response or a poor response and deal with this issue of partiality, of kind of prejudging. The book of James, she's going to fabricate a story and say, let's say two different people come into the church. And one of them's dressed this way, all nice and uh, gold rings on the fingers. Literally what that term means is a gold finger. Probably what it's alluding to is in, in those days, if you could afford it, you would put multiple rings on your finger. And that's how they referred to it as the gold finger, because then the more rings you had, it showed that you had more wealth. It showed you to be a person, probably a position within society. And so you're an important person. The more rings you have on, the more important you are. So you got this gold-fingered guy that comes in. And then you have this guy that's poor, and he's dressed in, how do we treat people like that? It's not just in that kind of a thing, but even how do you treat people that are popular, 
and people are less popular, is there a difference in the way that we treat those two people? Or do we have the same kind of compassion and kindness for both of them? And that's really the situation that he's dealing with, is he's dealing with this problem with partiality. I think sometimes we can be partial without even recognizing it. In fact, I think often people are partial without recognizing it. I think it's something that people can often see in you better than you can see within yourself. But that's just even more reason for the self-examination. I think also we don't see it as the evil that it is. You know, when you look through this passage, he identifies it as sin, as a transgression, as evil in our judgment. So God's perspective of it is that this is a sin that's worse than what we often attribute to it. You know, those are good reasons that we ought to really think about this. This is kind of one of those, if you want to call it a white-collar sin, I think, (laughs) that can kind of fly under the radar, and we can be participating in it and involved in it, and a red flag sometimes doesn't even go up over there. And so it's an area where Christians really need to pay attention and say, what is our heart toward other people? And do we cater to people that have more, what should we call it, social clout? People that have more popularity. You know, I think it kind of boils down to kind of a self-centeredness. Because if we do give more credence or more attention to people that have that kind of clout, then why would we do that? It seems like it's, it has to be because there's something that we gain from that. And so it has to kind of boil down, I think, to that self-centeredness. But at any rate, the, what we're considering here this morning that James is pointing out to us is a problem of partiality. Now, he's already kind of been hitting there. He's already dealt with it in a couple different ways in chapter 1. Chapter 1, in verses 9 through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So he takes the one, he says, Look, if you find yourselves in poverty as a believer in Christ, don't worry. Rejoice in your exaltation. God reaches down into your life and he lifts you up. And he says, If you find yourself to be rich, then rejoice in your humiliation. What were they to rejoice in exactly about their humiliation? It's the fact that your richness doesn't make you any more acceptable before God than the poor guy's poverty does. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The wealthy in the middle of their pursuits, they continue to pursue wealth and accumulation. At some point he's going to die and it all goes to somebody else. He's saying plain and simply, as you've heard many times, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Your poverty doesn't get you any closer to God, neither does your wealth get you any closer to God. The poor man can rejoice in the fact that in Christ he is going to be raised from the dead and he's going to be exalted before God. And the rich man can rejoice in the fact that that wealth doesn't buy him anything. It's not that cheap of a deal. So you think about that then, from that theological understanding, then the natural consequences of that would be you treat everybody the same. You're not going to show preference to somebody because of their social status or the clothes that they wear or their standing within society. You're going to treat them just even because none of that stuff really matters anyway. When he gets to the end of chapter 1 and verse 27, we saw last week that he said, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He highlights two groups of people, the widows and the orphans, who both would be your more vulnerable within society, and says, look, if, if your religion is pure, then you're going to have some focus on how you treat people that are in disadvantaged positions within your society. And that's the last verse before we hit... James chapter 2. And what is the very first thing that he says in James chapter 2? Don't show partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Later on in the passage, 
in verse 9, he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by law as a transgressor. We need to be impartial. Notice what he says there. It's, we should not exercise partiality in holding on to our faith. As you live out your life before God, you hold on to that faith. You're trusting in Christ. It is a complete contradiction for us to exercise partiality toward people if we're trusting in Christ. Because he's saying, look, you can't treat the poor negatively and the rich positively. That would be the partiality that he's talking about. But when you think about Christ, who was he? Now, I know he's the Son of God, which ranks him way up there, right? But who was he in this world as he came and was born into this world? He was born into just a poor carpenter's home. Not white collar, blue collar. We know it was a poor home because of the offering that they offered up when they dedicated Christ was what you were allowed to offer if you couldn't afford the regular offering for that dedication. But as we look down through the passage, there's kind of three ways that he's going to deal with it. First is just the principle. He's going to lay out the principle of, of what exactly is he dealing with in this partiality. Then there's going to be a little bit of a test. There's a few words in there that kind of test us. Give us a test where we can examine ourselves and say, look, do I have a problem with this? And then in the end, there's the outcome. There's this outcome about where do I fall in this and what can I expect as I see where I line up in this situation. So it's a very practical passage as all the book of James is. But as we see the principle, firstly, we want to focus on the fact that partiality is not consistent with faith. Jesus, as I said, was born in a poor home. He was born in Bethlehem, which Bethlehem, notable city, but nothing compared to the glory of Jerusalem. Then they end up moving off to Egypt to protect him from Herod, back to Israel, but not back to Bethlehem or even to, or to Jerusalem. Where does he go? To Nazareth. And it says that he is raised in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth did not have the best of reputations. In fact, when Philip calls his brother Nathaniel and says, hey, we've found the Christ. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus raised in a place that, that that was kind of the mindset of. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Galilee had the same thing. That was a lot of the speculation about him too. No prophet comes from Galilee. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 41, as they're discussing Christ and He's doing all these amazing miracles and some people are saying, look, this has got to be the guy. If this isn't Him when the real guy comes, is He going to do more than this guy's doing? This has got to be the guy. And others are saying, no way, it's not the guy. It says Others said, this is the Christ, but some said... Is the Christ to come from Galilee? And then a little bit later in the same chapter, in verse 52, says they replied, Are you from Galilee too? In other words, are you not that sharp? You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer either? You know, when you look at Jesus' life, He was poor from start to finish. I'm amazed when I read through the Gospels, you realize just about everything that you find Jesus using, He borrows. He borrows a boat to stand out there and teach on or to travel across it. He borrows a boy's lunch to multiply it and feed everybody else. He borrows a tomb, because he's only going to need it for three days, but borrows a tomb to be buried in. And he borrows an upper room to have the Passover with his disciples. He borrows a donkey to go riding into Jerusalem on. Just about everything physical that he touches is borrowed. And then not only that, but his statements about his life mission. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, it says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus was often ridiculed for hanging out with the publicans and the sinners. In other words, he wasn't spending his time looking for the chief seats among the Pharisees. He was more content reaching out to the people that they would look in disdain upon, because he would not show partiality between 
the two. In fact, if he had a problem with anybody, it would be the Pharisees. It would be completely inconsistent with our faith to show partiality to people that are wealthy or privileged in society and demean somebody else when our Savior Himself came and lived in poverty, when He focused His ministry on reaching people that were struggling and suffering. But secondly, partiality is also inconsistent with love. Now, this is is big if you think about it, because how does, as we've pointed out many times, how does the Apostle Paul tend to evaluate churches, Christians? Now, I know that we're studying the book of James right now, but the Apostle Paul, who was dominant in writing the New Testament, tended to evaluate people through faith, hope, and love. These three things. Well, James in this passage, he's going to take two of those things and challenge us with them. He's saying, look, it's inconsistent with your faith. But then also, he says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. He brings in this concept of love. If you're loving your neighbor, that kind of becomes the rub, right? When Jesus challenged the religious leaders of Israel with that, their next question was, well, who's my neighbor? Okay, I'll love my neighbor, but I want to define who that is. And Jesus says, okay, I'll define it for you. And he starts to tell him about the guy that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets robbed on the way and left for dead. And he's in the ditch. And then you have the Levite comes by and passes, crosses the road so he doesn't have to deal with the guy. And the priest comes by and goes across the road. And then you've got this Samaritan. Now, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were dogs, they referred to them as. And the Samaritan actually stops and helps the guy. And Jesus says, now let me ask you one thing. Out of those three people, which one was his neighbor? And so he doesn't mind taking this chance to identify who our neighbor is. Is anybody that we can be helpful to? Is that's, that's who our neighbor is. If you're treating everybody as your neighbor and you're dealing them with the same amount of kindness and compassion, then you're doing well. But if you're not, then you're sinning. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he defines it a little bit or explains it a little bit more clearly. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Uh, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so then, the reverse of that is, if we're going to look down on somebody because of their dress or social status or whatever, then that is the opposite of love. And so he says, look, it's contradictory with our faith to treat people partially. It's contradictory with our love. It's contradictory with God and what God is like. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 7 and 8, now this is God writing to His chosen people, Israel. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Remember when God first set His love on Israel? They weren't even a people yet. The man named Israel wasn't even born yet. It would be a couple generations. God first set his affection on one man, Abram, and they were a couple that could not have children. And so God's saying, I didn't choose you because you were the grandest nation. You weren't even a nation. You were an infertile couple. He says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so God is looking at the people that we call His His chosen people. And He's saying, look, why did I choose you? It wasn't because you were all that in a bag of chips. It wasn't because you were the greatest, because you were the smallest. You know, the New Testament tells us a very similar thing about ourselves. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're my chosen people. Why did I choose you? wasn't because of your greatness. I just chose you because I loved you. James lays out this story of this two people coming into the service. And he says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? And so it's inconsistent with who God is. God is impartial. Romans chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Therefore, we need to be impartial. But kind of lastly, in, in dealing with the principle, partiality is not consistent with our experience. Look at your experience as you look around us. Who, is, who, who would you say that God has chosen to make His children? Well, when you look broadly across the world and, and in probably every given situation, our pews are usually filled not with the people of power within society, but by common, ordinary people. Now, God, does God save the prominent? Yeah, absolutely. There's some. We often focus on the fact that, that in Jerusalem in the early church, there were people that were so poor that other people were chipping in to help them, but the point is there was both. There was a lot of poor people there dealing with struggles, but there were also people like Barnabas that had possessions and wealth that he could sell and, and chip in to help those people. As the Gospel spread, there was other people like Lydia. Lydia, seller of purple, seemed to be doing very well listed as a prominent woman within her society. And so, yes, there's, there's people of both. There's people of wealth and there's people of poverty. The point is we need to treat them all the same. But he says, if you look at a whole, at the big picture, what do you find? You're going to have some powerful and prominent and wealthy here and there, but mostly it's just common, ordinary people. And some people that do struggle on the bottom end of it with poverty and things as well. And then he goes in to talk about, look at uh, what you experience in rubbing shoulders with the powerful. Isn't it usually the powerful that bring most of the persecution to the church? Yes. Isn't it those people that are the, you find being the ones dragging you into court? As we look at our religious liberties in our country and those things getting threatened, you know who's going to be at the helm of those threats? It's going to be the powerful and the wealthy that are going to try to clamp down on religious liberties, but not the poor and the downtrodden. And so that's what he says. He says, look, it doesn't make sense. Why would you have it in your mindset that you need to honor the person that is wealthy and powerful and you can look down on the person that's not when that's the person that's going to trample you? It just doesn't make sense. And so pretty much any way we look at it as we look through this passage, Treating people with partiality doesn't make any sense. It's not consistent with our faith. It's not consistent with the concept of love. It's not consistent with God and who He is. And it's not consistent with our own experience in this life. You often think, don't you sometimes catch yourself, you see somebody that maybe is famous or has some abilities in some area, and you think, boy, if God could save them, if God would save them, boy, how He could use them. You know what? God don't need them. We constantly make distinctions and divide people up into groups and things like that, and God says... Don't really need to do any of that. Well, then he gives us a test. Let's back up to verse 2. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, as we learn in 1 Corinthians and other passages, there are times we're called to judge. And where the Bible tells us to judge those inside the church. And the church needs to make judgments. We need to hold one another accountable in that way. But these kinds of things where you show preferences over wealth and clothing and things like that, that we have no business making judgments in those kinds of areas. Now, notice what he says in verse 3. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing. If you pay attention. You know, as I started to work through this passage and over and over and over again, I found myself saying, all right, well, wait a minute. What do I pay attention to? As I look at the relationships that I have with people and people that I talk to or spend time with, who, who gets my attention? Where does my attention go? Because that's, a, that's an indication of whether I'm somebody that deals partially or not. Because whatever I favor, that's what's going to get my attention, right? And so he says, well, if you pay attention to the one group and ignore the other one, then you're showing partiality. And so I can kind of take my own relationships and start thinking, now, wait a minute, who do I try to reach out to? Who do I try to have a conversation with? Where's my attention going? And then I think it helps us even deeper as he points out their response. He says, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit, what's the next word? Here. What's he going to say to the other person? You stand over there. And you know, we all, we all do that, right? With one person, you're pulling them close. You sit here. You, you come here. And with the other person, we're pushing away. You sit there. You go over there. And then it also makes another distinction because it says you sit here in a good seat, place of honor. You sit there or at my feet, not a place of honor. And so with one, you're trying to see the best for them. With the other one, I would say it's probably not a psychology tells you the opposite of love is not hate. It's just apathy. You don't, it's kind of not emotion at all. You just don't care, right? And that seems to be kind of what this is. This one, I'm concerned that they have the best. This one, I don't really care so much. Just sit over there, sit down here, whatever, but just be quiet. That gives us something to evaluate ourselves with and say, well, wait a minute. Who do I pull close and who do I keep at arm's length? What's the difference between those people? You can start to evaluate your own heart. As I said before, a lot of times these things are easier for somebody to see from the outside than for you to see in your own heart. Our, our heart's deceitful and desperately wicked, the Bible tells us. Who can know it? And so to evaluate our own heart, he gives us these things. What are you paying attention to? Where does your attention go? Who do you pull close? Who do you hold off? And why? And you're able to, to kind of judge your own heart. And that, as the Bible tells us, if we judge ourselves, then we won't have to be judged because we'll take care of that problem. Well, then lastly is finally the outcome. In verse 8 he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And so he's saying, look, as you look at yourself and what you pay attention to, who you pull close, who you push away, uh, if you evaluate yourself and you find that you are loving people, then you're, you're doing well. Keep it up. But then he says, But if you show partiality, then you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, where did we get the command to love your neighbor? From the law. And where do we get the conviction if we don't? From the law. 
And he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Remember, at the beginning I said this seems to be kind of one of those sins that we kind of consider a white-collar sin. In other words, not quite so bad. There really isn't a sin that's not quite so bad. And that's what he points out here. As he says, look, if we, if we sin against God, then we sin against God. You know, we like to kind of stack them up. And I'm not saying that all sin is sin. Um, in that sense, there are definitely worse sins that you can find in, in the, the Bible expresses that way. In the Old Testament, some of them you died for, and some of them you were, you paid a price for. But, um, they weren't all even, but they were all bad. No matter which law you break, you broke the law. The law is like one body, one, one commentator that I read compared it to a window. He says you can smack a window with a hammer and you broke the whole window. You didn't just break the corner of the window. You broke the whole window. The window is broken. That's the way the law is. And the law is there to convict us. That's its job. You know, a lot of people have the idea throughout the world that the law is something that kind of stacks up pros and cons. And if you fulfill this law, then that's a, that's a mark in the plus side. And if you blow this law, you break this law, that's a minus in this column. And so in the end, you just total them all up. The Bible right here in the book of James says that is not how it works. If you've broken the law, it doesn't matter which one or how exactly you did it. If you broke the law, you broke the law. And you're guilty before God. Well, but wait a minute. I kept the law a thousand times and I only broke it five. You broke the law. I've never been pulled over by a police officer to thank me for going the speed limit. I've, I've never been pulled over on a one-way road to say, you know what? You're going the right way. Keep it up. Now, I did get pulled over on one of those roads. You're going the wrong way. And it cost me a price because I'd had to go all the way around to get to the pizza place. It's late at night. There's this one little quick road just a half a block long. I pulled in there and he was nice enough to let me go in and get my pizza while he wrote me a ticket. But that's the point. The, the job of the law is to convict. It's, it, shows our, it shows our guilt. And so... That's what it does. It says, do not commit adultery. also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who would be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm just going to make this simple because we're late. We need to kind of bring it to a close here. But what he's talking about in that is he's saying, look, if we treat people without mercy and we stand before God, we can expect no mercy. You know, when you receive the mercy of God in your life, it makes you merciful because you feel so thankful for the forgiveness that you've experienced that you become forgiving like that for other people. It's the same reason that Jesus would say, if you don't forgive anybody else for their trespasses against you, you're not going to be forgiven either. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean we get to heaven by forgiving others? No. You get to heaven by being forgiven by Christ. But when you are forgiven by Christ and you get a glimpse of how much you've been forgiven, you all of a sudden realize that it's a small thing for me to forgive them for these things. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit at work within you and the forgiveness that you experience from Christ makes you a forgiving person. And that's what he's saying here. I was going to read for you the story of Zacchaeus, but I'm going to abbreviate it because of our sake of time. Zacchaeus is somebody that wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus was coming to town, but Zacchaeus was short. So he climbs up in a tree so he can get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus walks right up to Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house for lunch. And Zacchaeus is overwhelmed. He's just hoping for a glimpse of Jesus. And 
Jesus says, I'm going to your house. You're going to, I'm your guest of honor today. And Zacchaeus comes down and a change takes place in Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which were known for cheating people. And he gets down and he says, you know what? I'm going to give a large percentage of everything I have away. And if I've defrauded anybody and can figure out who they were, I'm going to pay them back many times over what I took from them. Where did this come from? All he asked for was lunch. And this amazing change comes over Zacchaeus. All of a sudden, he's like recognizing how much he is being forgiven by Christ and makes him forgiving towards other people, makes him want to set everything right. You see what's happening? Mercy is triumphing over judgment. And so the outcome of this, the outcome of this needs to be that. He says, look, if we are looking down on people, looking at people partially, then we're committing sin. We are a transgressor. Those two words, the word sin, hamartia in the Greek, means to miss the mark. You fell short. The other one, a transgressor, means somebody that goes beyond God's limits. So in other words, we have both not gone far enough and gone too far at the same time. We've missed the mark in both ways. You know what needs to happen here? Mercy needs to triumph over judgment. But he's saying that mercy that you've experienced in your life should make you merciful toward everybody else that's around you. Let mercy triumph over judgment. Do not show partiality toward one another.